Hello, I'm Jackie McGlone, a journalist. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and to this Meet the Author event with Margaret Atwood, the author of 40 books, works of fiction, poetry, and essays and literary criticism. Margaret's novels, The Handmaid's Tale, Cat's Eye, Alias Grace, and Oryx and, and Crake, I always have trouble with that. <laughs> were all shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, and in 2000 she won the prize with The Blind Assassin. She is also one of the greatest living writers, in my humble opinion, not to have won the Nobel Prize for Literature. <coughs> but perhaps one day. For those of us suffering from severe withdrawal symptoms, um, while we await a new Atwood novel, she has a rare book festival treat for us today. She is going to read some poetry for us and some short fictions. So, ladies and gentlemen, Margaret Atwood. That's got my passport in it. All right, I should, I'll keep my eye on it, Margaret. <laughs> It's I'm watching one, it. Thank you. We don't think of Jackie as, as a journalist. We think of her as the journalist. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes. The kind of thing I'm going to do today is... Um, I thought I would do 20 minutes of short, short fictions, many fictions, 20 minutes of poetry, and 20 minutes of questions for a nicely balanced program. Uh, and some of this material is new. And I will also mention a book that, that you can't buy yet. <laughs> <laughs> but you will be able to buy it in, in October or so says Canongate. I, um, I write more than I publish. S with some people, it's the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> so these are some things I'm working on and some things that, that will appear in... Um, February, no, March. In March, a book of many, many fictions is coming out called The Tent. And uh, publishers always have a lot of trouble with these because they don't know what to call them. And they are, in fact, a sort of grab bag of different forms, but they're, they're all very, they're very condensed. And some of them are monologues, some of them are, um, you might call them animal fables, and some of them are many science fictions and some of them are dialogues and therefore I just call them very very short things and <laughs> this is a book of, of those kinds of things called Good Bones and there's a previous one also called Murder in the Dark but this is a new one and it's called Our Cat Enters Heaven. Our cat was raptured up to heaven He'd never liked heights, so he tried to sink his claws into whatever invisible snake, giant hand, or eagle 
was causing him to rise in this manner, but he had no luck. When he got to heaven, it was a large field. There were a lot of little pink things running around that he thought at first were mice. Then he saw God sitting in a tree. Angels were flying around with their fluttering white wings. They were making sounds like doves. Every once in a while, God would reach out with its large furry paw and snatch one of them out of the air and crunch it up. <laughs> the ground under the tree was littered with bitten off angel wings. Our cat went politely over to the tree. Meow, said our cat. Meow, said God. Actually, it was more like a roar. I always thought you were a cat, said our cat. <laughs> but I wasn't sure. In heaven, all things are revealed, said God. This is the form in which I choose to appear to you. I'm glad you aren't a dog, said our cat. <laughs> Do you think I could have my testicles back? <laughs> of course, said God. <laughs> They're over behind that bush. <laughs> our cat had always known his testicles must be somewhere. <laughs> One day, he'd woken up from a fairly bad dream <laughs> and found them gone. He'd looked everywhere for them, under sofas, under beds, inside closets, and all the time they were here, in heaven. He went over to the bush, and sure enough, there they were. They reattached themselves immediately. Our cat was very pleased. Thank you, he said to God. God was washing its elegant long whiskers. De rien, said God. <laughs> Would it be possible for me to help you catch some of those angels, said our cat? You never liked heights, said God, stretching itself out along the branch in the sunlight. I forgot to say there was sunlight. Uh, true, said our cat, I never did. There was an episode with a fireman and a ladder he preferred to forget. Well, how about some of those mice? They aren't mice, said God, but catch as many as you like. Don't kill them right away. Make them suffer. <laughs> you mean play with them, said our cat. I used to get in trouble for that. It's a question of semantics, said God. You won't get in trouble for that here. Our cat chose to ignore this remark, as he did not know what semantics was. <laughs> He did not intend to make a fool of himself. If they aren't mice, what are they, he said. Already he'd pounced on one. He held it down under his paw. It was kicking and uttering tiny shrieks. They're the souls of human beings who have been bad on earth, said God, half closing its yellowy green eyes. Now, if you don't mind, it's time for my nap. What are they doing in heaven then, said our cat. Our heaven is their hell, said God. I like a balanced universe. <laughs>
I have decided to encourage the young. Once I wouldn't have done this, but now I have nothing to lose. The young are not my rivals. Fish are not the rivals of stones. So I will encourage them open-handedly. I will encourage them en masse. I'll fling encouragement over them like rice at a wedding. They are the young, a collective noun, like the electorate. I'll encourage them indiscriminately, whether they deserve it or not. Anyway, I can't tell them apart. <laughs> so I will stand cheering generally, like a blind person at a football game. Noise is what is required, waves of it, invigorating yelps to inspire them to greater efforts. And who cares on what side and to what ends? I don't mean the very young, those who can still display their midriffs without attracting derision. <laughs> Boredom's their armor. To them, I'm a voice balloon with nothing in it. No, it's the newly conscious young, I mean, the ones with ambition and fresh diffidence, those who have learned the hard way that reach exceeds grasp nine times out of 10. How disappointed they are. And if and when they succeed for the first time, how anxious it makes them. They develop insomnia or claustrophobia or bulimia or fear of heights. Now they will have to live up to themselves. Bummer. <laughs> Here I am, happy to help. <laughs> I'll pass round the encouragement a cookie's worth for each. There you are, young. What is a big, stupid, clumsy mess like the one you just made? <clears throat> Let me rephrase that. What is an understandable human error? <laughs> but a learning experience. <laughs> Try again. Follow your dream. You can do it. What a fine and shining person I am. So much kinder than when I just finished being young myself. <laughs> I was severe then. My standards were exacting. The young, I felt, were allowed to get away with far too much, as I had been. But now I'm generosity itself. Affably, I smile and dole. On second thought, my motives are less pure than they appear. They are murkier. They are lurkier. I catch sight of myself in that inward eye that is not always the bliss of solitude. And I see that I am dubious. I scuttle from bush to bush at the edge of the dark woods, peering out. Yoo-hoo, young, over here. <laughs> I call, beckoning with my increasingly knobbly forefinger. That's it. Now, here's a lavish gingerbread house. decorated with your name in lights. Wouldn't you like to walk into it, claim it as your own, stuff your face on sugary fame? Of course you would. I won't fatten them in cages, though. I won't ply them with poisoned fruit items. I won't change them into clockwork images or talking shadows. I won't drain out their life's blood. They can do all those things for themselves. <laughs>
This is a piece called It's Not Easy Being Half Divine. And <laughs> it's about Helen. And um, I wrote it actually before I wrote this book that you can't buy yet, which is called The Penelope Ad and is uh, part of the myth series from Canongate. And it's called The Penelope Ad because it's narrated by Penelope, wife of Odysseus, who just happens to have been the cousin of Helen of Troy and uh, also just happens to have been Odysseus's second choice for wife. Um, he was first a contender for the hand of Helen, so you can kind of imagine what Penelope thinks of Helen. Uh, on the back we have the 12 maids who were hanged at the end of the Odyssey, and part of the book is narrated by them as well. But that's in the future. First we have this piece called It's Not Easy Being Half Divine, narrated by a nosy neighbor. <laughs> Helen lived down the street from me when we were growing up. We used to sell Kool-Aid off her front porch, five cents a glass, and she always had to be the one to carry the glass down the steps, eyelids down and with that pink bow in her hair, mincing along like she was walking on eggs. I think she palmed a few nickels, being hardly the most honest type. I know she's famous and all now, but quite frankly, she was a pain in the butt then and still is. She is to tell the worst lies. Said her dad was somebody really high up. Not the Pope, but close. And of course, <laughs> we teased her about that. Not that this so-called big shot ever showed his face. Her mom was just another single mother, as they call them now. But my own mom says, they had another name for it once. <laughs> she said they had goings on at night around there, naturally. Since every man in town thought it was being handed out for free, he used to throw pebbles at the door, shout names, and howl a bit when they got drunk. The two boys, Helen's brothers, they were pretty wild. They took off early. When she was 10, Helen went through a circus phase liked to dress up, thought she'd be a trapeze artist. Then he got close with the woman who ran the beauty salon, used to do her hair for her and give her product samples. And then she started drawing black rims around her eyes and hanging around the bus station. Fishing for a ticket out of town is my guess. She was good looking, I'll grant her that, so it wasn't surprising she got married early to the police chief, quite a catch for both of them, as he was pushing 40. Then, just a few months ago, she ran off with some man from the city who was passing through. Didn't need the bus ticket after all. He had his own car. <laughs> Quite the boat. Hubby's pissed as hell. He's talking about a posse. Go into the city, smoke them out, beat the guy up, get her back, smack her around a bit. A lot of men wouldn't bother with a tramp like that, but it seems he doesn't believe in divorce. Says somebody has to stand up for the right values. Personally, I think he's still nuts about her, and anyway, his pride is hurt. Trouble is, she's flaunting it. The new man's quite well off, set her up in some sort of mansion. Her picture gets in magazines and people asking her, her about her opinions. It's enough to make you sick. So there she is, all diddied up in her new pearl necklace and smiling away as sweet as pie and saying how happy she is in her new life and how every woman should follow her heart. Says it wasn't easy when she was growing up, being half divine and all, but now, 
She's come to terms with it, and she's looking at a career in the movies. <laughs> Says she was too young to get married that first time, but now she knows how fulfilling love can be, and the chief wasn't, well, he just wasn't. <laughs> of course, everyone thinks she's saying he was a nothing in the sack department, so there's been some snickering up the sleeves, though not quite openly because he's still got a lot of clout in this town. The long and the short of it is, pardon my pun, nobody likes to be <laughs> nobody likes to be laughed at. The chief's from a big family, a brother and a lot of cousins, all of them with muscles and tempers. My bet is things will get serious. It's worth watching. <laughs> All right, and one more of these short mini-fictions. That was just the run-up uh, to the Trojan War, in case you didn't spot it. This one is called Tent. You're in a tent. It's vast and cold outside, very vast, very cold. It's a howling wilderness. There are rocks in it, and ice, and sand, and deep, boggy pits you could sink into without a trace. There are ruins well, as well, many ruins. In and around the ruins, there are broken musical instruments, old bathtubs, bones of extinct land mammals, shoes minus their feet, auto parts. There are thorny shrubs, gnarled trees, high winds, but you have a small candle in your tent. You can keep warm. Many things are howling out there in the howling wilderness. Many people are howling. Some howl in grief because those they love have died or been killed. Others howl in triumph because they have caused the loved ones of their enemies to die or be killed. Some howl to summon help, some howl for revenge, Others howl for blood. The noise is deafening. It's also frightening. Some of the howling is coming close to you. <laughs> In your tent. <laughs> Where you crouch in silence, hoping you won't be seen. You're frightened for yourself, but especially for those you love. You want to protect them. You want to gather them inside your tent for protection. The trouble is, your tent is made of paper. Paper won't keep anything out. You know you must write on the walls, on the paper walls, on the inside of your tent. You must write upside down and backwards. You must cover every available space on the paper with writing. Some of the writing has to describe the howling that's going on outside, night and day, among the sand dunes and the ice chunks and the ruins and bones and so forth. It must tell the truth about the howling, but this is difficult to do because you can't see through the paper walls and so you can't be exact about the truth and you don't want to go out there, out into the howling wilderness, to see exactly for yourself. Some of the writing has to be about your loved ones and the need you feel to protect them, and this is difficult as well 
because not all of them can hear the howling in the same way you do. Some of them think it sounds like a picnic out there in the wilderness, like a big band, like a hot beach party. They resent being cooped up in such a cramped space with you and your small candle and your fearfulness and your annoying obsession with calligraphy, an obsession that makes no sense to them, and they keep trying to scramble out under the walls of the tent. This doesn't stop you from your writing. You write as if your life depended on it, your life and theirs. You inscribe in shorthand their natures, their features, their habits, their histories. You change the names, of course, because you don't want to create evidence. You don't want to attract the wrong sort of attention to these loved ones of yours, some of whom you're now discovering are not people at all, but cities and landscapes, towns and lakes, and clothing you used to wear, and neighborhood cafes, and long-lost dogs. You don't want to attract the howlers, but they're attracted anyway as if by a scent. The walls of the paper tent are so thin that they can see the light of your candle, they can see your outline, and naturally they're curious because you might be prey, you might be something they can kill and then howl over in celebration and then eat one way or another. You're too conspicuous. You've made yourself conspicuous. You've given yourself away. They're coming closer, gathering together. They're taking time off from their howling to peer, to sniff around. Why do you think this writing of yours, this graphomania in a flimsy cave, this scribbling back and forth and up and down over the walls of what is beginning to seem like a prison is capable of protecting anyone at all, yourself included. It's an illusion, the belief that your doodling is a kind of armor, a kind of charm, because no one knows better than you do how fragile your tent really is. Already there's a clomping of leather-covered feet, there's a scratching, there's a scrabbling, there's a sound of rasping breath. Wind comes in, your candle tips over and flares up, and a loose tent flap catches fire, and through the widening black-edged gap, you can see the eyes of the howlers, red and shining in the light from your burning paper shelter. But you keep on writing anyway, because what else can you do? That's, um, I'm now switching into poetry, a little bit later than I said. <laughs> I could read really, 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 really fast. <laughs> These are pretty much new poems. In fact, they're all new poems. <coughs> The Singer of Owls. The Singer of Owls wandered off into the darkness. Once more, he had not won a prize. It was like that at school. He preferred dim corners, camouflaged himself with the hair and ears of the others, and thought about long vowels and hunger 
and the bitterness of deep snow. Such moods do not attract glitter. What is it about me, he asked the shadows. By this time they were the shadows of trees. Why have I wasted my lifeline? I opened myself to your silences. I allowed ruthlessness and feathers to possess me. I swallowed mice. Now when I'm at the end and emptied of words and breathless, you didn't help me. Wait, said the owl soundlessly. Among us, there are no prices. You sang out of necessity as I do. You sang for me and my thicket, my moon, my lake. Our song is a night song. Few are awake. The poets hang on. The poets hang on. It's hard to get rid of them, though Lord knows it's been tried. We pass them on the road, standing there with their begging bowls, an ancient custom. Nothing in those now but dried flies and bad pennies. They stare straight ahead. Are they dead or what? Yet they have the irritating look of those who know more than we do. More of what? What is it they claim to know? Spit it out, we hiss at them. Say it plain. If you try for a simple answer, that's when they pretend to be crazy, or else drunk, or else poor. They put those costumes on some time ago, those black sweaters, those tatters. Now they can't get them off. And they're having trouble with their teeth. That's one of their burdens. They could use some dental work. They're having trouble with their wings as well. We're not getting much from them in the flight department these days. No more soaring, no radiance, no skylarking. What the hell are they paid for? Suppose they are paid. They can't get off the ground, them and their muddy feathers. If they fly, it's downwards into the damp gray earth. Go away, we say, and take your boring sadness. You're not wanted here. You've forgotten how to tell us how sublime we are, how love is the answer. We always liked that one. You've forgotten how to kiss up. You're not wise anymore. You've lost your splendor. But the poets hang on. They're nothing if not tenacious. They can't sing. They can't fly. They only hop and croak and bash themselves against the air as if in cages and tell the odd, tired joke. When asked about it, they say they speak what they must. Cripes, they're pretentious. <laughs> they know something, though. They do know something. Something they're whispering. Something we can't quite hear. Is it about sex? Is it about dust? Is it about fear?
The Hurt Child. The hurt child will bite you. The hurt child will turn into a fearsome creature and bite you where you stand. The hurt child will grow a skin over the wound you have given it, or not given because the wound is not a gift, a gift is accepted freely, and the child had no choice. It will grow a skin over the wound, the hoarded wound, the heirloom wound you have pried out of yourself like a bullet and implanted in its flesh. A skin, a hide, a pelt, a scalded rind, and sharp fish teeth like a warped baby's, and it will bite you. And you will cry foul, as is your habit, and there will be a fight, because you'll take the fight out of the box labeled fights you keep so carefully stored against emergencies, and this is one. And the hurt child will lose the fight and will go loping, loping off into the suburbs and will cause panic in drugstores and havoc among the barbecues. And they will say, help, help, a monster, and it will get into the news, and it will be hunted with dogs, and it will leave a trail of hair, fur, scales, and baby teeth and tears from where it has been ripped by broken glass and such. And it will hide in culverts, in tool sheds, under shrubs, licking its wound, its rage, the rage you gave it. And it will drag itself to the well, the lake, the stream, the reservoir, because it is thirsty, because it is monstrous with its raging thirst, which looks like spines all over it. And the dogs and the hunters will find it, and it will stand at bay and howl about injustices, and it will be torn open, and they will eat its heart, and everyone will cheer. Thank God that's over. And its blood will seep into the water, and you will drink it every day. The poet has come back to being a poet after decades of being virtuous instead. Can't you be both? No, not in public. You could once, back when God was still thundering vengeance and liked the scent of blood and hadn't got around to slippery forgiveness. Then you could scatter incense and praise and wear your snake necklace and hymn the crushed skulls of your enemies to a pious chorus. No deferential smiling, no baking of cookies, no, I'm a nice person, really. Welcome back, my dear. Time to resume our vigil. Time to unlock the cellar door. Time to remind ourselves that the god of poets has two hands, the dexterous, the sinister. A change of pace. At Brute Point. The old people descend the hill in slow motion. It's a windy hill, a hill of treacheries and pebbles and twisted ankles. One has a stick, one not. Their clothing is bizarre, though wash and wear. 
Foot over foot they go, down the eroded slope, flapping like sails. They want to get down to the ocean, and they accomplish this. Could it be that we are the old people already? Surely not, not with such hats. We may have been here before, at least it looks familiar, but we are drawn to hills like these, remote, bleak, old history, nothing but stones. Down by the tidal pool, there are two plastic bottles, a few small mollusks. One person pees in a corner out of the sun, the other not. At this point, once, there might have been sacks with the waves rampaging in, as if in films. But we stay fully clothed, talk about rocks. How did it get this way, the mix of igneous and sandstone? There's mica, too, that glitter. It's not sad. It's bright and clear. See how spryly we climb back up, one claw and then the other. I'll read two more. I'll read one more. <laughs> you heard the man you loved talking to himself in the next room. He didn't know you were listening. You put your ear against the wall, but you couldn't catch the words, only a kind of rumbling. Was he angry? Was he swearing? Or was it some kind of commentary, like a long, obscure footnote on a page of poetry? Or was he trying to find something he'd lost, such as the car keys? Then suddenly he began to sing. You were startled, because this was a new thing. But you didn't open the door, you didn't go in. And he kept on singing in his deep voice, off-key, a purple-green monotone, dense and heathery. He wasn't singing for you or about you. He had some other source of joy, nothing to do with you at all. He was an unknown man singing in his own room alone. Why did you feel so hurt then and so curious? and also happy, and also set free. The passport is safe. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Margaret, I looked up an interview I did with you about five years ago. And in that, you said to me, um, you knew you would write when you were about 16, because you recalled in 1956 crossing a football pitch, an invisible thumb descending from the sky, pressing down on your head, and a poem fully formed was there. Does the thumb still descend? Well, notice that it's a thumb and not a finger. <laughs> <laughs> it's not this, it's that. Mm -hmm. um, that's a bit of a joke. Mm. Uh, but yes, obviously the thumb or finger, uh, or whatever it is, 
is still um, around. Do you have to encourage it to descend now? The Do I have to <laughs> encourage it? <No>. Thumb. <laughs> uh, I don't really need a lot of encouragement. Um, what I usually have a lack of is free time, but that just makes me the same as everybody else in the world as far as I can see that we're all, all of these labor-saving devices that we've invented, all these tools we've invented for ourselves that we're supposed to make things easier have actually filled up time. Need I mention the internet, mm -hmm. just for starters. What it means is that instead of waiting, instead of mailing a letter, waiting a couple of weeks for the person to get it, for them to reply, for them to send you an answer back, people want answers now. And if you don't answer them that day, they'll send you another email saying, did you get my email? <laughs> you, when, you start, when you started to read the poems, you said, these are only poems. Is that what I said? Mm -hmm. Shame on me. Uh -huh. I didn't uh -huh. mean that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I said, these are all new poems. You said all new, and oh, uh, oh, I thought you said only poems, so I must have misheard you. <laughs> I think I said all new. I don't yeah. think I would ever say only poems. How do you, do you, when you write poetry and you write short stories, is that a sort of displacement activity in some ways for getting on with the novel, or do you get as much pleasure out of these small forms, this lovely short, succinct form of the poem and the perfect form of the short story? Uh, is it displacement activity for novels? Uh, you know, we have this odd idea that the novel is more because it's bigger, that it's, it's more important as a form. I, I don't think that bears up to any kind of scrutiny. It's, it's our other feeling that, that tragedies are more important than comedies, but anybody who's ever uh, tried to write both knows that comedies are way more difficult to write. Mm -hmm. And they're certainly way more difficult to translate. They're, they're very tricky. Um, I started in... Uh, when I was 16, I started writing all of the things that I, that I have continued to write, except novels. <laughs> I didn't start writing novels then, but I wrote these short forms early, earlier than I um, wrote novels. Mm. A novel really takes one to four years out of your life. So when I'm thinking about the different forms, I just I think of the waveforms in a novel as being longer. You know, it's just, it's more like a tidal wave. And in a poem, things are a lot more condensed, unless it's a long narrative poem. Mm -hmm. That's different. Mm -hmm. We have to give the audience a chance to ask some questions, um, because I know a forest of arms will shoot up. <laughs> um, we have microphones, and we will come to you. We have a lady over here, please. Morning. Um, actually, I had, had it prepared, but just hearing you, hearing your writing rather than reading your writing, to me. Just a, there are the, the short forms, as you call them, are completely different from poetry. But actually, there's a we saw the beginning of a blurring of lines there, just a wee bit. And I wondered how you defined when that thumb hits and presses down on you, what distinguishes or 
which form you take for a subject matter? Well, it's not really me doing the distinguishing. Um, people, we, when we were in high school, we had to do this thing called the pricey. And the pricey was you, you read the poem, and then you were supposed to write in 25 words or less what the poem was about. <laughs> and that gave us a wrong idea, I think. It made us think that there was this stuff, namely the content, that the poet then perversely uh, stuck into this thing called a form. You know, and that, that just made a lot of people think, well, why couldn't they just say it? You know, if, if what it means is war is hell or I love you or uh, these things. Why did he have to put it in a sonnet and, and make us write exams on it? You know, it's <laughs> but it, it's not like that. It's, it's not that the content appears over here and then you stuff it into this thing called the form and that you can stuff it into a poem or at whim you can stuff it into a novel or you can stick it into a, some other form. Things come with their own rhythm. And you, you know pretty much immediately whether it's going to be, you certainly know whether it's going to be a poem. There's no question about that. My theory, poetry happens in a different part of the brain. It's closer to music and mathematics, further from the part of the brain that deals with speech. And just to complicate things even more, uh, writing, reading, and speaking all have different parts of the brain, neurologically. You can have a kind of a stroke that makes it impossible for you to read, though you can still write. Isn't that strange? Who would have, not, who would have thought it? But it is so. Anyway, with, with the poem, I think it's a lot closer to music. And again, you can have a kind of a stroke that makes it impossible for you to speak, but you can sing words. So the singing word part is in a different part of your brain. And what, it, what is writing anyway? It's, it's, it's notation. It's like a musical score. What's it a score for? It's a score for voice. And that's true whether it's a, a, a novel, a poem, or a, or a, a short form. But the, the, um, the notations as are, as I said, for different wavelengths. Does that sound too complicated? <laughs> and a short, short answer, well, I don't we, decide. We, I don't decide. It just is. You know, Madame Bovary could never have been a poem. <laughs> <laughs> Did any short story ever become a novel? No short, no short story ever out. became a novel. Although one failed novel did produce three short stories out of itself. <laughs> <laughs> but that probably was why it was a failed novel. You see, it wasn't integrated anyway to begin with. It was timped, fragmented right from the start. There's one story there. I'm sure you've been asked this question before, and I apologize for that, but I want to know. Um, do you find yourself writing for... To, to achieve anything or to get somewhere or just because you have to? And where do those lines and boundaries cross and blend? Do I um, write to achieve a goal in the outside world, like world peace or something? There's a lot of messages in a lot of what you say. Um, messages, well, what are messages? Messages are just uh, the fact that we live in 
that, that writing takes place in a world of language, and language is by its nature something that cannot help but make pronouncements about good, uh, better, best, and bad, worse, and worst. It's built into the language, and it's certainly built into, the, into any plot form. It's not that the writer is necessarily making those kinds of judgments. The reader will make them, because that is how language works. Um, you have, you have a, something, a word called weed, and you have another word called flower. Now, they could be referring to exactly the same botanical form. And what are you saying when you, when you say, that's a weed? It means that it's something growing where you don't want it to grow. <laughs> You've made a judgment about it. You could take that same thing and turn it into a flower by saying, I'm using natural um, uh, forms that occur in this environment. You know, my whole garden is <laughs> dandelions. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's you making those decisions. You, you can't tell a story of any kind um, without having an outcome, because stories have ends. And then the reader or the listener will make a judgment about whether they felt that came out right or not, whether the right people got rewarded and the wrong, or the wrong people got rewarded. You, you can't avoid it. Have you set yourself out to, to write about those outcomes, though? Do I? Uh, you set not particularly. <laughs> Not particularly at all, but do, do I know that things go out into the world and, and change people who may encounter them? Yes, I know that. I cannot, however, predict it. You cannot predict the reaction of the reader to your work. Uh, for one reader, it may be the perfect thing they needed to read right then. Another reader may throw it across the room, they're so mad at it. And you cannot determine that. Why? Because people are all different. They're going to have different reading preferences. And this may be a terrible shock and disappointment to you, but some people will not like your work. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing ever said about that was said by John Bunyan in the uh, introduction to Pilgrim's Progress Part Two when he's saying that thing that so many writers say, which is go little book, you know, out into the world, make friends, etc. And he says that to the book. And the book becomes a person and answers back. And the book says to John Bunyan, I don't want to. <laughs> John Bunyan says, well, come on, why not? And, and the book says, because I'm afraid. And John Bunyan says, why are you afraid? And the book says, because some people won't, because what if they don't like me? John Bunyan has told it to go knock on people's <laughs> doors. What if they don't like me? And John Bunyan says, very sensibly, some people don't like cheese. <laughs> some people don't like fish. Some people don't like chickens. And some people won't like you. <laughs> so if you find somebody who doesn't like you, go on to the next door. Maybe they will. And the book says, oh, OK. <laughs> and then it turns back into a book. And John Bunyan does a sort of, he does a sort of advertisement for it. <laughs> Good value for money. <laughs> You'll like that. You'll get lots of, lots of book in this book <laughs> for what you have to pay. <laughs> anyway, that's, that, that will encourage anybody who's worried that somebody won't like their book. We have someone over here, please. 
Thinking back to what you said when you were a young academic in survival, I wonder how you look at your own work now retrospectively in the light of the thesis you advanced about Canadian writing then. Well, of course, Canadian writing has changed a lot, and the situation of writers in Canada has changed a lot, so that um, I think of it as a, as a period <coughs> piece, but in that piece I was not saying this is how Canadian writing ought to be. If you look at the chapters in that book, you will see at the ends of quite a few of them, we have to move beyond this. So I think in a, in a, in a number of ways that has happened. The people have moved beyond the positions that were, that were then the positions that were coming up in the writing. And remember how little writing I had to go on at the time. Uh, there really wasn't much um, for me to make a, well, there, there was enough, but not a super abundance of things for me to make a, a thesis like that about. I think it would be impossible now to, uh, to make that kind of structure, and I, I think it would almost be impossible about any literature now, uh, Scottish included. You, you can make some sorts of pronouncements about it, but it would be very hard to have a kind of overall scheme like that about any uh, country's literature because we've mixed and matched way, um, we're all reading um, things from all around the world and there's been a lot of migration of writers for various reasons. So the bag of candies has got a lot more things in it than it once had and conditions have changed, as, as I said. We have time for one question. The lady here, thank you. Do they, do they have to go in training to do the mic? Yes. <laughs> it's very, it's very Olympic. Impressive. Yeah, sort of like the Olympic <laughs> torch. <laughs> I always find your titles fascinating. At what stage in writing a piece do, does the title come to you and, and where does it come from? Uh, titles. Yes. Either you have the title immediately or you have a very difficult time getting the title. And uh, if you have a very difficult time getting the title, I used to have a, a page on which I wrote down all possible titles. And now I have uh, a folder on my computer and it's called Title Coral. <laughs> so the thing is to round up the wild titles, put them in the coral, the title coral, and then look at them and think about them a lot. And uh, that can go on for months and months. And also you have to take, do a search and see if somebody else has used that title. And quite frequently they have. So it goes like that, but sometimes the title just immediately presents itself. And other than that, it's a long, drawn-out process. And who knows? Who knows where they come from? I like a title that has at least two meanings um, and, of course, applies to the book and is reasonably short. You know, you wouldn't want a title that had about this many lines in it. 
Um, at this moment now, we have a wonderful surprise for all of you, and we also have a surprise for Margaret. Um, I'm going to ask Susan Rice, Chair of the Edinburgh International Book Festival Board, to join us on stage, please. Susan. That was absolutely wonderful, and thank you very, very much indeed. You just talked about how the world and literature moves all around the globe. The Edinburgh International Book Festival is itself a global institution, global in the writers it attracts and the ideas which are debated here. And a Canadian, your works, of course, are read in many languages all around the world. But beyond that, you've also had a profound effect over the last several decades on the development of confidence and something of a distinct voice amongst Canadian writers. And that is a contribution you've made over and above all that you've written. Now, your books have been described by reviewers with the most extraordinary range of adjectives. I did a great scan of the, uh, the, the, the internet, and I shan't repeat all of them here, you'll be glad to know. But I want you to know that we think that you're as clever and as wonderful as all of the critics tell us. Mm -hmm. To quote just one of them, you give us grand storytelling on a grand scale. Now, if I don't restate their words, I would, however, like to repeat a couple of things you are reputed to have said, either in interview or in speech, because they really caught me. I quote, every artist is, among other things, a con artist. We con artists do tell the truth in a way, but as Emily Dickinson said, we tell it slant. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful statement. Uh, you've also said that the driving force, and I quote again, the driving force in the world today is the human heart, that is human emotions. And you've certainly given us evidence for that statement again and again in your works. Finally, you said, if you can laugh, you're still alive. You haven't given up yet. And I think we've seen today very happily that none of us has given up yet. Um, you make us laugh as you did today. You make us think. You touch our hearts and make us feel. You've created marvelous examples of literature, but you've also moved the genre on, especially in and on behalf of your native Canada. We thank you for that. We thank you for joining us and speaking with us with such frankness and thoughtfulness and humor. And we want to do a little more than... I'm not done yet. <laughs> we want to do a little more than just thank you. We also want to honor you. Uh, you may or may not know, and just hold off till I give a signal. Um, yeah. What is it? <laughs> you may or may not know that for the, the 21st birthday of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, which was last year, we launched a literary award called the Enlightenment Award. Last year, we gave it to Muriel Spark. On behalf of the board of the Edinburgh International Book Festival and all of its staff, we're absolutely delighted to honor Margaret Atwood by presenting her, by presenting you, with our 2005 Enlightenment Award. The award itself is a unique and commissioned artifact created by Tim Richards, who's sitting right here in the front row. Uh, and when I do give the signal, we shall see it. <laughs> It represents not just books and literature, but also reflects your world itself. And you'll see that in just a minute. If we <laughs> you can see it all now. Uh, <laughs> if we honor you with this award today, you indeed honor us by being here and by agreeing to accept it. Margaret Atwood, thank you very much.
And what's on the other side? Oh, isn't that wonderful? Oh, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> oh. I'll say thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm, I am indeed very honored. And uh, how am I going to get that? That is extraordinary. And I understand that they're book hands and that you can put them on, and we're certainly, <laughs> we really need those <laughs> a lot. We really need those. So I will, I will always treasure that, and thank you for your kind words, and, and um, I'm, I'm very touched. Thank you. Thank you so much, Margaret, and um, thank you, Susan. Susan mentioned these many descriptions of Margaret. One, that, one of the ones I like best appeared recently, a whirring brain on two tiny legs. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask all of you, please, to be so kind as to remain seated so that Margaret can leave this tent, and um, she will be signing copies of her books in the, the signing tent, and it's left and left again. Thank you so much, and thank you again, Margaret. <laughs>